0: You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, again, thank you for coming out this evening. I realize that we have a somber message before us tonight. However... As it has been said over and over and over again, Sunday morning is on its way, and we look forward to that. But for now, let's turn our hearts and our minds to the incredible sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 22, Psalm 22. It's Good Friday, the day that we remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, And I can think of no better place for us to turn our attention to this evening than Psalm 22. There are a handful of psalms that are considered to be messianic psalms, psalms about the Messiah. And some of them are clearly prophetic as they look forward to future events like we recently saw in Psalm 2. Others run parallel with the experiences of the psalmist himself They go side by side with what the writer is expressing and experiencing in his own life and what the Messiah will experience in his. But then we find ourselves face to face with that rare exception of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is so rare and so unique that we can only approach it one way, and that is as prophetic poetry. It is prophetic poetry The superscription tells us that David is the author, he's the human author, and yet as hard as David's life was, he never experienced anything like this, anything like what we have described here in this text. He never even came close to the suffering that we see here. Several theologians and commentators have pointed out that what we have here is not a description of illness, but a description of execution. And not just any execution, a very specific execution, execution on the cross, a torturous form of capital punishment that wouldn't be invented until hundreds of years after David would write this. Many find it remarkable that David would come up with such a thing in his mind, in his imagination, that he could could look ahead and that he could describe with such detail what a crucifixion would look like. In such poetic language, it goes far beyond his own experience to portray the sufferings of Christ on the cross with such vivid detail. And yet we know, we know as believers that behind the man, the divine author of Scripture himself, the one who moved men along as they participated in God's revelation, it is not remarkable for him to bring David to the foot of the cross. It is not remarkable at all. Because he knows the future and he knows the heart of man. In Acts 2, Peter stood up and he declared that David was a prophet and that he wrote about Christ. And Jesus himself quoted Psalm 22 twice on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, saying that its fulfillment is found in Christ alone and not in David. So make no mistake tonight that what we have before us now What we are about to look at in Psalm 22, it is a prophetic poem about Christ. Period. The New Testament connects this psalm to Jesus at least 15 times. And the extraordinary truth about this psalm is that it takes us beyond the observable events of the cross itself, of Calvary, to the thoughts and the prayers of Christ as he hung on the cross. While he was dying, This is what Jesus was thinking about. These are the thoughts that are rolling through your Messiah's head as he purchases your redemption. It goes past the external to the internal. All the gospel writers, all they can tell us is what happened as they saw it. They can say this happened and then that happened and so forth as the events unfold. But Psalm 22 goes beyond that. It tells us what Jesus was thinking as he hung there on the cross, and he died for our sins. And more specifically, what he was focusing on, as the Father crushed him, as the Father crushed him in the place of sinners, what was going on in the mind of Jesus? Remember, he hung on that cross for six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. that day. For the first half of the day, we know that Jesus Primarily thought about other people. He was concerned about others for those first three hours. As he was led through the streets bearing his cross, he saw the women that were weeping after him. And he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. What a response. And the soldiers drove the nails through his hands and feet. And as they were doing so, he prayed what? He said, father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he hung on the cross during those first three hours, he told the thief hanging next to him, he said, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And to Mary and John, he said, here is your son and here is is your mother. His thoughts were consumed with others from nine to noon. But at 12 o'clock, everything changed. Everything changed. The father poured out his wrath against sin upon his son, starting at noon. From 12 to 3, it is as if the father shut the doors around him to privately deal with Jesus himself as the darkness rolled in. When we think of God, we naturally think of light. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. The scripture also ties the presence of God with darkness. Darkness. Psalm 18.9 says, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And a couple verses after that, David says, He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. At the ramification of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, at both of those covenants, God chose not to wrap himself in blinding light, but with a thick, impenetrable darkness. It should be no surprise to us then to see him ratify his new covenant of Jesus' blood on the cross using an intense darkness. Satan's hour against Jesus ends at noon. The father then shows up, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops focusing on those around him. He no longer turns from from looking at everyone else and thinking about everyone else while he is suffering. Now at this point, he goes quiet. In fact, he says very little during those last three hours. He cries out the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He then says, I am thirsty because there is one last prophecy that must be fulfilled from Psalm 69. And then at the end of the darkness... He shouts out that final line of Psalm 22. He says, It is finished. It is finished. Our English text of Psalm 2231 says, He has done it. However, if you were to dive into the Hebrew language, you'll notice that there is no object for the verb here within the Hebrew. So Psalm 2231 literally reads, It is done. It is finished. After that, Jesus commits his spirit to the Father, and he dies. As he hung there during the last three hours of the most excruciating death imaginable, he was meditating on the Old Testament. Jesus was thinking about the Old Testament. He was living Psalm 22 while he was dying. It is no coincidence that As he paid for our sins on the cross, that he would begin during those dark hours, as as he would make propitiation for our sins, that he would begin with Psalm 22, verse 1, and he would end with Psalm 22, verse 31. So let's pull back the curtain and explore the mind of Christ as he suffers on the cross in our place. Psalm 22 has too many stanzas for us to give each one an alliterated point tonight, so we won't do that. Instead, I've divided the text into five headings to help us navigate this masterpiece. First of all, I want you to notice the Messiah's problem. The Messiah's problem. His problem becomes clear in the first five verses. He begins in verse one with this double cry. He shouts, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? From the start, we know that this psalm is a psalm of lament. As Jesus hangs at high noon in utter darkness, as our sins are transferred upon him, and as he who knew no sin became sin. For us he then cries out in the most personal and passionate way he says my God my God why have you forsaken me up until now Jesus has never addressed the father this way never he has always referred to him more personal than that he has always said father or my father but not now just hours earlier as the nails were going through his skin he cried out father father forgive them But now he addresses the Father as his God, his God, showing the distance between them as he suffers the wrath and he bears the judgment for our sins. The Messiah's problem in this moment isn't the threat of death or the scorn of the crowd. It is the abandonment. It is the separation he feels from the first member of the Godhead. That broken fellowship that he has never experienced throughout all of eternity past until now. He cries out, my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In other words, my salvation is a long ways away. It's not coming this time, at least not right away. And Jesus knows why. He knows why it's not coming. He knows the answer because this was the father's plan all along since from the beginning to have his son die on a cross and to suffer the greatest loss for the greatest gain. He says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. He says, in the light of the day and in the darkness of night, I have no rest and I hear no reply from God. I don't hear anything. I keep asking for something, but the heavens are as brass. They are shut out to me right now, and I have never felt so far from my God. There is no escape this time. God will not deliver me. For the first time, he who shared intimate fellowship with God, as God, knows how it feels to be abandoned by God. But notice these rhetorical questions of anguish and abandonment. They're not born out of a lack of faith. It's not like he doesn't know what's going on. In verse 3, he says, Yet you are holy. What a response. Yet you are holy. And Jesus knows that this is the only way for lost sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. It is because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God that our sin deserves an infinitely holy punishment. Jesus knows that this is the only way that he must bear that sin that separates us from a holy God and that that holy God must deal with that sin by first separating himself from his Son. And so the Messiah finds confidence and trust in this fact as he remembers The holiness and the faithfulness of God. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Cause and effect. Because God is holy, he always has shown himself to be holy. He is also faithful and he has always shown himself to be faithful. He has always shown himself to be true. He will never let anyone down. And so he remembers that on the cross. The Messiah finds confidence and trust as he remembers the holiness and the faithfulness of his God. He says, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Because God is holy and he shows himself faithful. Those in the past who have trusted him, they know this truth about God. Jesus knows this truth better than anyone Having spoken personally to Moses and to Abraham and Isaiah and so many others directly, they trusted in the Lord, and the Lord never failed them. Now it's Jesus' turn to trust God. So he looks to God, and he remembers God's faithfulness. Verse 5, to you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Another word for shame here is the word disappointed. He says, they trusted you and they were not disappointed. Let me ask you this. Has anyone here ever been disappointed by anyone ever? I think we all have. At one time or another. If you haven't, you're a liar and you need to repent. (laughs) Okay? Because we have all suffered disappointment. We have all felt that sting. We have all asked someone to do something for us and they've let us down. Or we relied on someone and they've not followed through. We have all experienced that. But friend, God will never do that. God has never done that. He will never disappoint you. This God who has never lied, never backpedaled, and never failed. Not once. Not once. If you cry out to him, he will surely rescue you. There's no maybe about it like our Savior as he hung on the cross, you too can find strength and confidence in the character of God, knowing that whatever your problem might be tonight, you can consider the complete goodness and faithfulness of God, and you can find encouragement there. You can find strength there because he has a perfect track record, and he will never let you down. Jesus mentally cries out these truths about God, back to God in his darkest hour, looking forward to his deliverance. But that doesn't eliminate his problem. Doesn't eliminate his problem as the text continues to describe his intense suffering. that brings us to heading number two, the Messiah's persecution. The Messiah's persecution. Look at verse six. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Whoever said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that person was an idiot. And I think that we all know that. Whoever said that is completely out of touch with reality. Words hurt. Words cause pain. They are harmful. And it's not empowering to deny or downplay the effect of our words. He says, I am a worm. This is how he feels on the cross. He says, I am a worm. I am the lowest form of life on the planet. And I am no longer a man. That is to say, he no longer looks like a man. He no longer feels like a man. He no longer functions as a man. Isaiah 53 verse 14 says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. As he hangs there, he is no longer resembling a man, but a grotesque figure of something else. He says, mankind, that's the human race, all of them, the human race, mankind hates me. They despise me. Verses 7 and 8, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, and here's what they say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He says, they belittle me with their words and their actions, they make faces and they shake their heads in disgust. And they mock him by turning his own words around on him from verses 4 and 5. And they say, okay, you say that you trust in the Lord. You say that he is faithful. You say that he has done all these things for people in the past, and he has done all these things for you in the past. Let's see him deliver you. Where is he? Why hasn't he delivered you yet? Where is your God now, huh? They say you're trusting in the wrong help because God isn't going to save you. He's not going to do it. Just look at you. And these are the exact same gestures and insults that Matthew records for us. In chapter 27, verses 39 through 40, Matthew writes, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You would think that the scribes and the elders would know better Than to fulfill the poetic prophecy of Psalm 22 so perfectly. And yet, that's exactly what they did. And look at Jesus' response and his reply. What does he do then? He doesn't turn his attention back to man, he doesn't even answer them, he doesn't reply to their, their mocking and their gestures. Instead, what does he do? He keeps laser focus on God during this time, he focuses on the Lord. In verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. This is his response to their, to their insults. He says, You, O God, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. In other words, you have caused me to trust you from the very beginning. Since the day that I was born, I have trusted you my entire life. And I will continue to trust you even now. In the midst of my death, he goes on to say, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. He takes it a step further, whereas earlier he spoke of God's faithfulness towards those who have trusted in God for salvation and for deliverance in the past. But now he speaks about God's faithfulness to him, to himself, since the day he was born. He says, From the womb you have been my God. Friend, sticks and stones may break your bones, but make no mistake, words still have the power to hurt you. And when persecution comes and, and folks belittle you and they mock you for standing up for the truth, for doing the right thing, for trusting in the Lord, when that happens, friend, remember to be like Jesus. Don't answer them, don't fire back. Don't retaliate. Keep laser-focused precision on God and remember Him. Don't take your eyes off of God. Instead, remember God's faithfulness. Remember how He has been faithful to others in the past. Remember how He has been faithful through His Word to men like Abraham and Moses and the rest. Remember how God's character never changes, how he will preserve you as he has preserved them. And as he has ultimately given them salvation, he will give you salvation as well. Remember his faithfulness to others and then remember his faithfulness in your own life and trust him. Let him take care of the mockers. Jesus says, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. He calls the maddening crowd a bunch of bloodthirsty animals in his head. Bashan was the fertile farming plateau just east of Jordan. It was where everything appeared to grow bigger and better. And even the bulls were bigger and better in Bashan. By likening the mob to these bulls, he's he's calling them powerful, senseless, brutish, and dangerous. And he's saying that these these powerful animals are encompassing me and they are surrounding him in triumph as the prey trapped by predators suspended on the cross for all to see he can't escape. Verse 13. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. His enemies are fierce. They're looking to finish the job with violent intensity their wickedness won't be satisfied until the murder of God's anointed is finished. That is the Messiah's persecution. That's number two. Number three, and this is perhaps the hardest section of the psalm for us to get through, the Messiah's pain. The Messiah's pain. Verses 14 through 18 contain what is perhaps the most graphic description of Jesus' suffering in all of Scripture. Scripture. The Gospels tell us what happened. Isaiah tells us us why it happened. Here we are told how it felt. He says, I am poured out like water. I'm poured out like water. That is to say, I have no energy left. I am completely washed out. I am an empty vessel. He is saying, I am an empty shell of a man. And it takes every ounce of strength for him to raise himself up, catch a breath, release, and then raise himself back up again, catch a breath, and release. Agonizing pain with every breath. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My bones have been pulled out of their sockets and the pain is excruciating. With every breath, it is painfully clear that his body has literally become a bag of bones. He goes on to say my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast," meaning that his heart his soul his inner man it, it is like a melted candle consumed in the heat of God's wrath against sinners. Concerning this verse Charles Spurgeon wrote the fire of almighty wrath would have consumed our souls forever in hell. It was no light work to bear as a substitute the heat of an anger so justly terrible. Church, when God emptied his fury for our sins against his son, he didn't hold anything back. He released the full force of his wrath and his fury against sinners upon his son. And Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. For those last three hours of darkness, God did not treat his son as his son. Because at that time, Jesus bore our sins. He had our sins placed upon his body. He paid the price by suffering the penalty for every sin that you and I have ever committed against this holy God, such a price was paid at Calvary. We have here a picture of his physical anguish, but also his emotional and his spiritual pain as the sinless one willingly subjected himself to the intense anger that God has for our sins. Verse 15, my my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. He compares his strength to the the dryness of a broken piece of pottery, a piece of clay. He is like an old flower pot that crumbles as soon as someone touches it. His tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth because all the moisture in his body has left him. He is hanging on by a thread, but he knows what's coming next. He says, you lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. The imperfect tense here emphasizes the fact that God is the one who is now doing this. You are the one who is laying me down into the dust of death. God has not only abandoned him, but God is actively participating in his destruction. Alan P. Ross writes, quote, In the final analysis, if God did not do anything to deliver him, then it was God who was putting him in the grave. End quote. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, He was smitten by God, by God, and afflicted. And again in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Because his soul has become an offering for guilt. God didn't send his son into the world so that his son could have the human experience. That is not why he sent his son here, he sent him here to die. And the Father willed for it to happen. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we all deserve. The Father wanted this to happen because you can't provide the gift of eternal life without first paying for the wages of sin. And the wages of sin is death. Your sins against a holy God cannot remain unpunished. Someone has got to pay for your crimes against God. And without a perfect substitute, the very best of us deserves hell. Eternal hell. Eternal separation from this holy and righteous God. But Jesus, in his perfection, having never sinned his entire life, hung on that tree to bear your sin in his body. It is as though he stood before God as the mighty judge of heaven and asked for a verdict. That would punish him instead of you. And remarkably, it pleased the Father to make him pay for your crimes so that now when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience of Christ. He says, You are free to go. Why? Because my Son has paid your debt. And his righteousness has now been accredited to your account. Because on that day when he looked at his Son, he didn't see his Son. When he looked at his son, he saw your sin, your rebellion, as he laid him down in the dust of death. At this point, though, Jesus he continues to liken those around him to mindless animals, and he says, "For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet." Now you might notice that there is a textual variant there in the text. Some have argued that the alternative reading here is to be preferred. You probably have a footnote at the bottom of your page translating the word pierced to like a lion. Friends, just ignore that. It's really not important. It's unfortunate that a vowel-pointing error of the Masoretic Jews in the Middle Ages could cause such a stir because pierced is the better translation. What you have on your page is right. And you don't need to look down in the footnote for a reason to doubt what it says. Pierced is the better translation. Again, the stunning accuracy of God's infallible and inerrant word shines through this text. As these words were penned centuries before, the Persians would invent crucifixion. Centuries before that, and over a thousand years before Christ himself would fulfill this prophecy. He says, I can count all my bones, He's saying the pain is unbearable. They stare and gloat over me. Their wicked and depraved hearts are drawn to the spectacle. They find sick pleasure in my torture. He says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Once again, according to John 19.24, this literally happened at the cross. According to Roman law, the last possession that a condemned man could hold on to was his garment. Here the soldiers considered him to be as good as dead already, even though he hadn't died yet. And so they decided to cast lots for them early. It's interesting to note that so many of the little prophetic details found here in Psalm 22, they were carried out not only by Jesus on the cross, but they were carried out by his enemies and by those who were there at the event. In the end, God knew exactly what would happen. Because he knows all things that will happen, and he plans for them to happen. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he delivered an incredible sermon, an incredible message, one of the best sermons ever. And in Acts two twenty three, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, you made it happen. But it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Friends, no one has suffered. No one in the history of mankind has suffered like the Lord Jesus has suffered. No one has. The problems, the persecutions, the pain that you and I have experienced in this life, they all pale in comparison to the sufferings of Christ. What he endured on the cross, when he went through all of that, he carried more than the weight of his broken body. He stood in the place of sinners so that you and I could sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he is the one who has washed it white as snow. We owe our Messiah everything for the price that he paid and the promise that we have in him. Number four we have looked at the Messiah's problem the Messiah's persecution and the Messiah's pain. In verses 19 through 21 we see the Messiah's prayer. The Messiah's prayer. The entire psalm acts as a silent prayer but these verses crescendo with his final petition and they are a turning point for the psalm he says but you O Lord do not be far off don't leave me come back come back. I, I, I can't stand this sense of distance between us. He cries out, oh you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. That's total destruction. My precious life from the power of the dog. Notice in verse 16, he called the crowd dogs, plural. But now he wants deliverance from the dog, singular with a definite article, most likely referring to the satanic powers behind their madness. He says, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the certain imminence of death. And can you sense the desperation in his voice as he prays these things to the Father, as he finds himself right there on the edge, just mere moments away from losing consciousness and breathing his last breath as a condemned man, when all of a sudden his memory of God And his faith in God explodes with this final cry. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the final scream in the Savior's mind as the chaos and the tempest of paying for our sins gives way to a rapturous sense of joy. Joy and praise. And that is what we have in the rest of this psalm. Number five, our final heading As he finishes his time on the cross, we see the Messiah's praise. The Messiah's praise. Look at verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Just in case there was any doubt, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse in Hebrews chapter 2, proving once again that this is Jesus' experience, not David's. As he hangs there, suffering the horrors of separation from God and God's wrath against sinners, he thinks ahead to the glory that he knows is coming. He knows that in three days, this same God will raise him from the dead. He knows that death's victory is fleeting at best that God will exalt him to the same degree to which he has been humbled and will bestow upon him the name that is above every other name, the name of Lord. He looks beyond the cross of his death to the joyful praise that he will share with his brothers in the Lord. And this is what he will say. He will say, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He longs for the day when he will point others back to God the Father, the same one who crushed him for their sins. Knowing that yes, he has to die on the cross, otherwise, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But the Father will not let His Holy One see decay, as it says in Psalm 16. He will not let the grave swallow His Son for good. And so, three days later, this same crushed, crucified worm of a man will be raised in glory incredible glory. Why? Because God has seen his affliction. He has heard his petitions. And this faithful God will once again prove himself to be fully faithful. Jesus continues to think about what he will tell his disciples after his resurrection. He says, from you, speaking to the Lord, he says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. May your hearts live forever. This great congregation, as opposed to the congregation in verse 22, probably refers to the great assembly of heaven. That great assembly of all believers. Everyone who has placed their faith and trust in this Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. As redemption is accomplished, And God the Son returns in triumph. The Father will praise the Son, and the Son will praise the Father. And we shall join in the chorus, all of those whose hearts will live forever. He goes on. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Not just the sons of Jacob. Not just the sons of Israel. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Friends, that is a promise. That is a promise. As the good news of what God has done through Christ on the cross goes out, People will act in faith. They will respond in faith and they will become true worshipers of the one true God when they hear the good news of what this God has done for them. That's a promise. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. He rules over them all. The angry crowd, the mocking unbeliever, the hateful tyrant, the evil one himself. They may all win a few battles. Here and there. But friend, our king is coming and he will put an end to all wars. He will. It may seem as though we are beaten. He is beaten. But friends, that is not the case. Our king lives. And he will come again. And he will put things right. Because he rules and he reigns over this world. He does. They don't know it or they've refused to accept that fact, but one day they will. Verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even those who have everything will realize that they have nothing without this Savior. Like the afflicted of verse 26, they too will come and they will feast On the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be satisfied never to hunger again, never to thirst again. They will bow the knee in worship and humbly approach the throne of grace. He says, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The rich man will die like everyone else. It is destined for every man to die once and to then face judgment. And we will all go down to the dust. But here's the difference even though we all die, even though we all go down to the dust of the earth, only those who have trusted in this crucified Savior for the salvation of their sins, only those who have done that will not stay in the grave forever. They will not remain there. They will be raised to eternal life, whereas everyone else will be raised to eternal death. They will be immediately ushered into the presence of the one who suffered so much for them to be saved. Verse 30 Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Friends, that's us. You can underline, you can circle that part of your Bible. You can even write in the margin He's talking about me. Because that's us. We are those people yet unborn. Scripture says that we, the generations that follow, we shall come. And having come, we shall proclaim his righteousness to even more people who are yet unborn. And what will we say? What will our message be? That he has done it. He has done it. It is finished. And with these final words, Jesus surrenders his spirit into the Father's care, and he dies. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Since Jesus ended his earthly life by quoting the last verse of this psalm, it means that he did not die in despair. Rather, he died in triumph, knowing that the atonement was perfect and fully accepted by God, and therefore that countless future generations of sinful people would be saved because of it. Listen, there are only two types of people in this world. Those whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ and those who aren't. To the Christian, tonight I want to remind you that you have a Savior who knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to suffer, to endure pain and heartache, emotional, spiritual, physical pain and suffering. He loves you, and He sympathizes with you, and He is not far off. He is not as far away as He may feel at times when our sin causes a separation to form between us. He is here, and He is eager to forgive and to love. And He sympathizes with you. He is here. He has triumphantly conquered death so that you can enjoy life with Him forever. Whatever you're going through, friend. Christian, turn to the cross. Worship this humble God-man who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is your King of kings and your Lord of lords. Remember His faithfulness and His holiness and His sacrifice and be encouraged. Be encouraged. And may that be enough to see you through to the end. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. And that is exactly what he offers to you. And to the unbeliever, anyone here who might be on the fence or maybe hasn't committed their life to the Lord, they haven't experienced the joy and the peace and the wholeness that comes with this good news of the gospel of having your sins forgiven, I have to ask you the question. What makes you think that you will escape the wrath to come? What makes you think? If this holy God refused to spare His own Son, but crushed Him to save those who would believe in Him, then what hope do you have? What makes you think that you're going to get by? Soon, friend, this suffering Savior who died and is no longer dead, He is going to return. And He is going to set up shop here on the earth. He is going to rule and reign with perfect justice and perfect equity. And He will deal with sin once and for all. It has already been dealt with. Sin has already been dealt with on the cross for everyone who will place their faith and trust in Him. But for everyone who has not done that, for everyone who has not bowed the knee and confessed that Jesus is Lord here and now, before His second coming, friend, you do not want to be on that side of history. You do not Don't be like the dogs, the bulls, and the lions in this text. Don't reject this Messiah, who has promised never to turn away anyone who comes to Him. Trust in the Lord and believe that this Jesus is more than just a man who died. He is the God-man sent to die in the place of sinners. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that it is finished, that He has done it, And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of it all, he is Lord of everything, that he is God of gods, then this powerful Jesus, this power of his blood and his sacrifice will be applied to you forever. Forever. When the Father looks at you, he will no longer see your sin. He'll no longer see your failure. He'll no longer see your rebellion against him. Instead, all he will see is Jesus' perfect obedience. So don't turn away from the Savior. Don't turn away from the cross of Christ. Instead, turn from the sin that put him there. Confess your sin to God. Repent of your sins. Seek his forgiveness, and he will gladly give it to you. Friend, come to the Lord and live. Come to the Lord and live. Turn to the cross. Turn to this horrible, awful, wretched cross that provides forgiveness for sins. And all who come to it will sing, love so amazing, love so divine. It demands my soul, my life, and my all. If you have not accepted this Savior, if you have not bowed the knee, if you have not turned to him and confessed your sin to the Lord, tonight, I'm begging you, do it now. We don't know when he will return, but he is coming soon. All signs point to yes, he is coming soon. So bow the knee before this King Jesus. He hasn't just made a way, he has made propitiation for sin. Don't be a fool. Turn to the Savior and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, God of heaven, again, we thank you for the love, the great love that you have shown us in sending your Son to die in our place. Lord, we know that what he has suffered, what he endured, it was more than just to experience the human condition. We know that He didn't just swoon on the cross. He died on that cross. That he was buried. That he was put away in a tomb. But it was only for three days because you had made the promise that your Holy One would not see decay. That he was raised back to life. That you powerfully raised him from the dead. And that he ascended to your side to pray us into his kingdom. Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone here tonight who has not surrendered to this king, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. Lord, that you would draw them to the suffering Savior who has loved them this much and has made a way to forgive them of their sin. Lord, would you work in their hearts? Would you draw them by your great love? And for the rest of us, Lord, who, who have been saved, who have been so graciously given the gift of faith. God, I pray that we would never, never forget your faithfulness, that we would never forget your holiness and the sacrifice that was made for us on our behalf. May we hold on to these truths. May we find strength and encouragement from them so that whatever we face in the days ahead, we will endure to the very end. We love you. We thank you again for your grace and your mercy in your goodness and your love amen